0: Hey, welcome to Corecursive, where we share the stories and the people behind the code. I'm Adam Gordon-Bell. This is an FP interview, but I think it's a really broadly applicable one. Today we're going to talk about Swift, you know, the iOS development programming language. But really, we're going to talk about total programming. Total programming is a pretty cool concept. I don't want to define it because we'll kind of get into that in the interview. Some languages make total programming easier and some make it harder, but I think it's possible wherever you're programming. And it really just leads to more reliable code. In my mind, this idea of totality, it's kind of associated with functional programming, but I don't see why it has to be. Uh, I think of it as like a technique you can use anywhere. And it's uh, just a super powerful guidepost. You know, it's kind of a great perspective for thinking about your program. Andre, who we're gonna talk to today, that's what he wants to talk about. How this idea of totality and totality checking, it just led him to write better iOS apps. Andre Videla is an iOS developer and functional programming enthusiast. Andre, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: So you have a great uh, post on Medium about how uh, Idris and type-driven development inspired you and, and changed the way that you write uh, Swift code. Um, so I'd like to kind of start with some maybe background and then uh, dive into that. So for starters, um, for those who aren't familiar, what is Swift?
1: So Swift is a programming language that has been introduced by Apple a couple of years ago and is mostly used in the industry as a, a tool to develop iOS apps. Um, people use it also to start writing server code to go along with the iOS apps. And it has uh, some following on Linux also for general purpose like command line tools. It's a programming language uh, that is quite interesting in the sense that it is both uh, very high level, but also low level in the sense that you you need to think about memory and you need to think about how you um, move references around.
0: How is Swift different from Objective C, which was the previous
1: language for iOS? So when Apple introduced uh, Swift. They have this great, very great slide, which has uh, Swift is like um, Objective-C, but without the C. <laughs> it's quite funny. I don't really agree with that, but it's, it's still very funny to see it that way. Uh, I, I think what they meant is that it's um, all the nice features that we like to use in Objective-C or would like to use more of in Objective-C without the problems of having to deal with unmanaged memory and unsafe references for example so the differences are mostly well are in the type system Uh, objective c has a very i would say weak type system in the sense that it doesn't really help the programmer a lot it helps the machine mostly uh it helps the machine knowing uh, what to allocate where how much size it takes just like C, the 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 Type system of C is mostly there for the machine, not for the, the programmer. Swift's type system is uh, way better at helping the programmer, helping the programmer write down better specification, better uh, types, better abstractions, and therefore better code. So the differences are are deep between C and Objective C. Uh, most of the 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 Closer thing we can look like the the way they are close to each really other is, is that they use the same runtime and they're using the same platform that is iOS and they have their the same quote unquote parent which is Apple. Uh, other than that, they are very very different.
0: So is Swift, um, Swift is garbage collected, is that right?
1: Kind of. Um, People will be very annoying with uh, the term garbage collection because they will say that anything that is not manu- manually managed is garbage collected, uh, which in the strict sense is technically true if you look up it in your Wikipedia. Uh, Swift is what is called automatically reference counted. Uh, the compiler will look at your code. It will look at all the declarations, all the definitions, and all the instance, it, all the constructors and put little counters uh, that will say, oh, this has been referenced once, twice, three times, four times, etc." And inc- And put code uh, in between your code that says increment the reference count, decrement the reference count, and when the reference count hits zero, deallocate this thing because no thing will use this reference anymore. It's a form of garbage collection in the strict sense that you don't manage it manually. But uh, it does not have the drawback of what you see, for example, in more classically garbage collected programming languages like Java, where you have GC pauses, where the garbage collector, which is mark and sweep, will stop your execution, look at all the references that you're using, mark the one that you're using, and deallocate the rest. Uh, This incurs some latency, for example, uh, in applications when you scroll down a table. It's a classical example. That iOS developer will tell you is you cannot have smooth scrolling tables in Android because of the garbage collection. Uh, the GC will pause the execution of the program, look at all the references, deallocate the one you don't use, and then keep going, resume execution. Uh, Swift doesn't have doesn't have pauses since everything is dealt by the compiler. Everything is dealt with uh, at compile time, and and the execution never never stops. It just keeps going, just like a a, a program written in C or or object to C.
0: That's interesting. So in some ways, the the com- the compile time garbage collection, if you want to call it that, it's a competitive advantage for Apple because their their apps run more smoothly. Yes,
1: totally. Uh, it's it's a typical uh, iOS versus Android uh, argument to to use to say, oh, at least our apps don't pause. And it's very useful. <laughs> it's very useful when you you make things like games because, um, in on the Android platform, whenever you you start allocating lots of stuff or are very dependent on the resources of of the of the device, which are inconsistent across all devices, even iOS, uh, you really want to have consistency in performance. And the garbage collector doesn't the garbage collector of Java doesn't allow this. Uh, ARC allows somewhat more predictable performance uh, when, when comparing you know, memory allocation. Uh, I, I would like to note that uh, it's not because you have mark and sweep garbage collection like Java that you cannot have good performance. It's just really hard to do. And as someone said somewhere in the internet, I don't remember where it was, but um, you can, for example, in a mark and sweep garbage collected language, make a huge array of references and mutate them as you go and never mm-hmm. allocate more resources or deallocate resources because you always have a pointer to them. And that is very close to just having a huge buffer in C and putting stuff in it. And someone said, um, whatever your programming language, if you want performance, it will, no matter what, look like C. Because you do <laughs> a buffer of references, you put stuff in there, take stuff out, and that's just what you do in C.
0: But that's a... Uh... That's a sad thought to me. Um, <laughs> so, how you know what you're making me think of is is Rust. Yes. Um, so how does how does the garbage collection in Swift vary from Rust?
1: So I'm I'm unfortunately I'm I'm quite unfamiliar with Rust. I've tried to to use it once. and I made a, a toy ray tracer. Turns out uh, making a ray tracer is not the best way to learn Rust because. Uh, I don't know. Are you familiar with uh, Ray Tracing and Graphical methods? Uh, No, let's just uh, let's go go through this very quickly. So uh, a Ray Tracer is a way of rendering 3D scenes where you put a point in space and you have a set of objects in the same space. And from this point Mm -hmm. in space, you will project lines as if they were photons like uh, particles of light and see how they behave in this 3D space filled with objects. And the goal is to, by emulating um, trajectory of photons, emulate the way light bounces off objects to go from, for example, the surface of a table to the surface of a wall, to the eye of the camera or the viewer. And that's a a rendering technique that is uh, quite useful for reflections, for example, because as you can see, it's really natural, like you project your point somewhere. If there is an object that intersects this this projection, you can just bounce off it and then keep Mm -hmm. going until, you know, you, you do 13 or 15 bounces and then take the color value of this ray of light. And this will give you one color, one pixel on your screen. And it's, so that's basic, basic ray tracing. A, a ray tracer can be seen as basically a function from, as I said, a set of objects and a, a starting point, like the position of the camera in this in this in this space, mm-hmm. and it gives you a two D image. So it's a it's a function from a space, a set of objects, a camera to an array, a two D array. And uh, as, since you can see it as a pure function, uh, you can implement it using mostly pure function, you don't have to use state, you, you can go very easily and very naturally toward very basic linear algebra. And that makes Rust very not it doesn't make Rust shine doesn't make the features of Rust shine because you can write everything as um, integer copy instead of referencing uh, and mutate objects. So that's my experience with Rust is basically writing pure functions and writing it just like Swift. So you, you copy everything and you never reference anything. So, unfortunately, I, I cannot tell you much about how different it is from Rust. Uh I know that Rust has <laughs> the borrowing mechanic that is extremely uh, useful for this exact purpose that is referencing stuff, passing references along and making sure you don't reference something that is already borrowed by something else in case you mutate it and break uh, this, this assumption that your reference is safe where it's actually not because it's been mutated by something else. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, I don't have like programming experience with it.
0: One of the features that kind of makes Rust exciting is this way of that you could share hmm. share data across threads, exactly, for instance, exactly. but if every if everything's immutable, then there's no advantage hmm. there. Exactly. So uh, back to Swift, um, how how are nulls handled in Swift?
1: So. The goal of Swift, when it came out, was um, as they said to do Objective C without C, which meant uh, to make it a to learn from the, the mistakes of previous programming languages. Uh, I say mistake, but uh, people would say features. What I really mean is let's let's make a decision about what kind of bugs we allow in our language. And they decided that null pointers were not a acceptable bug to have uh, in this day and age. And what they did is implement what we can see in languages like Haskell or Scala, where you use an algebraic data type called maybe or option or optional in Swift, which has two possible values, well two constructors. It has either none or nothing or nil, or it has a sum constructor that holds a value, an arbitrary value of whatever of any type. And uh, Swift does not have null pointers. It has some magic behind the scene to be smart about what is a null pointer, what is not, and represent them uh, as nil. Uh, But really, uh, what you interact with is this algebraic algebraic data type that is either something which is wrapped into this type or this nil constructor that has no information about it. And the the, the goal of this is to eliminate the, the bug of referencing something that doesn't exist uh, and using it, even if it doesn't exist, it makes the, the, the compiler able to really easily tell that you're making a mistake when you're referencing something that can be gone from your control. So for example, you you have typically in iOS development, you have a, a label on the screen and you're not responsible for instantiating this label something else will at some point but you don't know when you don't know where you don't know at which point it will happen and maybe Mm -hmm. that when you're trying to use it it's not there yet or it's it's gone and the way it's represented is using optional so this label is either there so wrapped in a some label or it's gone or not there yet and it's a value of nil and if you try to use it the compiler will tell you you're trying if you're trying to use it directly the compiler will tell you you cannot use it directly because you cannot prove that it's instantiated yet you have to to do some case analysis to say is it there if it's there i can use it and it will do this and if it's not there i will do something else either ignore it or maybe do the instantiation and then use it or maybe do something else for example it's an error it's a huge mistake so i should move to some other view or display an alert that will say this is this has gone wrong because it was supposed to come from the server and it's not been it hasn't come back. therefore uh, something is wrong with the server And that's make, that makes it that makes the whole category of bug disappear because the compiler will always tell you this might not be there and therefore you have to handle the case where it's not there. And you contrast this with um, I was using the Java example, but we'll keep using it. Uh, Java has those null references or null pointers expressed as null, Mm -hmm. which are not different in the type system from regular references. If you have an object and you have a reference to this object, well, maybe it's null, maybe it's not, but you don't know. And the compiler doesn't tell you. You could use an optional type in in Java, and we are seeing more and more of them with uh, libraries like Guava. Or more recently, uh, I think it was Java 8 introduced the option type where you can use uh, option types in order to bypass this problem of not knowing if it's null or not. But since you don't know, at no point you can be sure that the either you are dealing with the neural references or you have to deal with the neural references. Or if you're dealing with it, if it makes sense, because, for example, you just instantiate an object and you use it three lines later, technically it could be null. But there is no reason to believe it's null because you can see it. Uh, the problem gets worse when you, for example, leave the code evolve for a long time and you have multiple lines going through those two points. Uh, even some functions are, are called and some mutation happens. And then really it becomes much harder to know if this reference is still valid or not. Uh, and that's what Swift does to to eliminate eliminate this problem is make it a, a, a data type. So this... this um...
0: This ties in to the topic of totality. Yes. I I believe Swift cannot enforce totality. However, if you have an option type or or any, I guess, some type, and when you deal with it, you handle all the possible cases, Mm -hmm. then Swift is allowing you to write in a total style. Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, it really helps uh, to, to to have a, a, a compiler that can tell you whenever you're forgetting something that you really shouldn't. It also has this extremely nice auto autocomplete for switching over algebraic data types. So if you write your own algebraic data type that is not optional, uh, even a complex one, it will automatically generate, for example, a switch case to do case analysis on it and not forget. Any cases, which is interestingly enough better than the default GHC option um, when you're using Haskell. Because, for example, in Haskell, if you if you pattern match on a on a data type, if you forget a case, it will compile just fine and explode at, at runtime if you if you hit this case. That's also unfortunate, uh, and that's also not total, and that's one way uh, where Swift is is. Um, is enforcing quote unquote accidentally totality by making sure that you handle all possible cases at all times and not forgetting any one of them. You mentioned
0: the halting problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, are you comfortable explaining what that is
1: briefly or so? Basically what it says is you are given an arbitrarily an arbitrary program. It could be anything could be literally anything. Can you tell if this program can terminate? And if so, will it terminate in a good state or a bad state? Or are there inputs for which it will not terminate? Or are there inputs for which it will terminate? All those questions are corollary to the halting problem. But the, the original is, can you tell if it terminates at all? And uh, Turing has this very nice proofs using Turing machines where programs are uh, implemented or well, are defined using Turing machines. So a program is a Turing machine. And the question is, does it exist, it, it, is it possible to make a Turing machine such that if you feed it another Turing machine, the original Turing machine will tell you if the machine that was fed terminates or not? So it's the same thing as, as rephrasing. Given an arbitrary program, can you write another program that can decide if any program terminates or not? And the proof is, is surprisingly simple, but a bit uh, contrived, if not used to proofs by contradiction. Uh, basically, you assume that a tr- such a Turing machine exists. And by assuming that such a Turing machine exists, you can do some neat trick, like fitting it to itself and realize that it cannot tell if itself terminates or not. And hmm. um, yeah, that's pretty funny, right? In itself, you, 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 the, yeah. the, 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 the problem it's, itself. And that makes it so you can give up on writing anything that can arbitrarily decide termination of anything. But it doesn't tell you that uh, they're not there. It does not tell you that it it does not exist a program or a class of programs that terminate. And that's what we're betting on with uh, languages like Idris and Ragda is that we know there exist some structures that always terminate. So for example, if you have a function like map on lists, you can pretty easily prove that it always terminates by saying that if you take the definition of a list, it's two constructors, either nothing or the, the, the tail of the, the list, like the, the last element, sorry, the last mm-hmm. empty element, or it's a concatenation between a head and another list. So the empty list is this first is this just the first constructor, a list of one element is the head and the empty list, a list of two elements is a head and list which contains one element, etc. And by doing case analysis on this constructor, you can say, well, if it's empty, then you return the empty list when you map across it. If it's not empty, you have the cons constructor which has the head and the tail. If you take out the head, apply the function on the head. And concatenate this result with the recursive call of map on the tail of the list using the same function what you just did is define a recursive call on a constructor that is smaller than the constructor that you were given to begin with right because you since you analyze mm-hmm. the cons case the list that is inside the cons case is by definition one smaller than the list that you were given in argument and since you're doing recursive calls, you cannot prove that arbitrary recursive calls always terminate, but you can prove that if you, make arbitrarily, if you make recursive calls on constructor that are always smaller, they converge toward a base case, which is our empty list. And that's one structure that we know always terminate. If you have a function or a program that makes self-recursive calls using constructor that are always smaller because you were able to destructure them using case analysis then this function will always terminate and that's that's how it just does it for for uh, for some cases
0: so because because um a recursive call and induction are kind
1: of the same exactly, thing right exactly hello
0: yeah sorry about this we're having some technical difficulties yes you cannot trust um, technology
1: when it's not total.
0: <laughs> exactly exactly so um, and at its root in a, in a very simple fashion a, a function being total means of all the possible input that come into this we have to handle all of them is that, is that how you would characterize it?
1: It's, it's uh, one aspect of it yes uh, it's probably the most important one when we're dealing with programming because we rarely write programs that go forever accidentally, uh, unless we make, as I said, either a very trivial mistake like wall true or a very complex one with uh, multiple um, recursive function calling each other. Uh, that's the case we we see most often when, when programming nowadays is, yes, you have to handle all the cases, not ignore any of them and make calls to other functions that are always also total, because otherwise you're going to prove that your fraction is total if you're calling something else that is not.
0: And in the mathematical sense, like divide by divide by zero is mm-hmm. is an interesting case. Uh, if, you, if you have a function that takes all, mm-hmm. you know, integers and then mm-hmm. divides them, um, but it takes two numbers and divides mm-hmm. one by the other. There is a case where, where it's not total. It's not defined when you divide yeah, by zero. Um, so,
1: math cheats because you can always say that uh, so, so, what you described is uh, called not like very, uh, it's not, very not original way of uh, calling it, but it's a partial function. So, if it's not a total function, it's a partial mm-hmm. function. Why is it partial? Because only only a subset of all the the possible arguments can give it give a result. So, the domain is partial. There is only parts of it that work. But you can cheat, saying, well. If it's partial, I can just say that my function is total by saying that the domain is the same as before, except the values that don't work. So (laughs) divide by, you could say, is total if you say the domain of divide by is everything but zero. And uh, that's how you would do it, for example, uh, um, in Idris. You would say, oh, I have a function divide by. It takes a natural number. It takes another natural number, and it takes a proof that the first argument is not zero oh, sorry the second argument is not zero and by giving this extra argument as a proof you what you do is that you constrain the the domain without changing the input output type and
0: yeah I, this this type of number that doesn't contain zero is something you might not find I guess outside of outside of Idris or Agda or so something. So
1: interestingly enough, I've I've posted a tweet uh, maybe two days ago where I had this uh, a very similar problem where I I had to use a function that takes a list that is of at least one element. It has to have at least one element, mm-hmm. and such lists have nice properties. Uh, one of them is. Uh, if you take the head of the list, you will always get an, a, an element, right? There is no case where you have a list of at least one element and you don't have a head because, well, if it's a cons, you take the head. And if it's the base gate, mm-hmm. it still has one element in it. Therefore, you just extract it and there you go. And
0: The head is total.
1: <laughs> yes, head is total. Uh, well, more the the signature list of A to A is total. You can trust it it will always work if given uh, that your list is not empty. Now in Swift, there is no way of writing this in a very simple way. So in Idris you would just say, uh, my list, it happens that it's a vector, but uh, the number of element here is n, uh, is successor of n, where n is a number. And that means that if n is zero, then your list is of size successor of zero, so it's one. And if your list, if n is more than zero, for example, four, it means that your list is of size five. And you realize quickly that, uh, well, you have, have all the possible numbers except zero. You can have all the lists, all the possible lists except zero by writing down this type. And it's very easy to write down mm-hmm. this type. And it's very easy to handle the proof because you can just say, oh, figure this out because you know I used this constructor before. Therefore, it has to be not zero. Therefore, this function can be called at this time and uh, address makes it easy. But in Swift, there is no way to write this function signature down. So what you have to do is to write down uh, a data type that is just like lists. So you have to write enum, non-empty list of elements is either something or cons, and then just rewrite the whole definition of lists. And that's annoying, right? Because you have to, uh, it, it's it's fine, right? Because Swift has protocol and protocol extensions. So you can just give it the sequence protocol and you get map, flat map, filter, drop, etc. for free. But still, like, I don't know, it was 50 or 60 lines of code uh, that you have to, have somewhere in your code base will call a library for this. Or it's also 50 lines that can contain a bug in it. Uh, Like, I don't know, for example, your reverse. My my first implementation, the constructor took an array and returned um, an option of non-empty list because the array might be empty. If the array is empty, then there is no list to construct. Then you return nil. If it's not empty, then you return some non-empty list which makes sense, right? But the way I constructed the list was reversed. And this is not something Swift can tell you. Uh, and um, this are, this is dangerous, right? Because you, you get in, you get into a situation where you want to express some things, but the type system is not good enough or the compiler does not give you enough guarantees about what you're interested in. And therefore you make very unfortunate mistakes that you could avoid with a different type system.
0: And an interesting example you brought to mind is, um like moving beyond head, if you wanted to get the, the uh, nth element of a list, so say you want to get the, the fifth element.
1: Um, if you want it to be total in the sense that you don't want to crash when you access the nth element to realize it's not there, is you have to return a data type like option, or maybe, or even result mm-hmm. and say, in case it's not there, in case I, I overflow the array or overflow the list, then return the special value that indicates, uh, that you, you overrun the length of the list. And, uh, that's, that's what, uh, option is very useful for in Swift because you, those cases are, 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 they happen very often and there is nothing you can do to, to prevent them, uh, partly because of the type system. Now, um, it, I feel like it sounds like I'm I'm a bit um, talking about about Swift type system because I'm saying oh it's so it's so inferior to to Idris's type system because you can in Idris for example you could say the function take nth takes a list but it also takes a proof that the list is of size at least n and then you're safe because the only way to call this function is to both have the list and the proof that it's of a certain length. And then, if you try to make a call where you don't have the proof of the size of length, the code will not compile. It will tell you, "I cannot prove that n is of at least this size. Therefore, this function might not like this function does not type check because I'm missing an argument." And it's really useful. It really helps. But uh, in day-to-day programming, uh, it's really a very nice step toward towards better programming to at least have optionals in Swift. I think it's a very good step for programming in general to have programming languages like Swift, which merge uh, both performance and low-level code and high-level abstraction, like algebraic algebraic data types, uh, protocol extensions, protocols in general, uh, unions, etc. So Swift has all this um, machinery to work with optionals. And it's very useful to achieve totality, even if it doesn't have all the uh, all the proof mechanism that Idris has.
0: Very true. You, you mentioned protocol mm. extensions. What what are protocol extensions?
1: So, uh, some people who are familiar with uh, Haskell or 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 Scala will be very happy to know that Swift has uh, enough uh, tools to have some way of implementing type classes, where you can say this type has. Uh, if this this well this type has those properties and therefore whatever type that confirms to those properties have those other functions um, it means that you can write for example uh, generic operators for example map filter flat map uh, on things like uh, new new data types that you you create yourself um, it's a bad example because it doesn't have higher kind of types so you cannot actually define Map and flat map generally, mm-hmm. uh, but what you can do, for example, what I, I what I uh, very often do is that I have a file somewhere called Algebra, where I have monoid, semigroup defined somewhere with a with a, a uh, what is it called the the plus operator, basically between two values of the same type, given a third value of the same type, and that's already very useful because there are so many so many types that you can write yourself. Uh, that need this property, but they don't have it by default. So if, if you can just define a couple things on this type, do a protocol extension saying, uh, I have this type, it comes from somewhere, but it conforms to Monoid. Then you get uh, the plus operation and all all the, the, the goodies for free. Uh, and that's very nice. That's also what happens with, um, for example, I mentioned uh, the non-empty data type. You can conform it to sequence mm-hmm. by a protocol extension, and that gives you map and flat map and filter. It's not the monadic flat map, etc., but it's already good enough. Um, that's uh, really a way to get a lot of functionality for free by uh, conforming to a type that is not a type that you were either aware of or existed at the time of the f- of the definition of your of your data type.
0: So, do you think that Swift should
1: have higher kind <laughs> of types, or you think that this uh, actually, uh, well, so there is this, uh, very funny way of thinking of, of, programming language that is, uh, programming language don't have features, they just have dreams. So for example, the dream of Rust is to have high <laughs> kind of types. Um, I don't know what the dream of Swift is, but, uh, we, we should go to Haskell. Like the dream of Haskell is to, to have dependent types. If you go to Scala, the dream of Scala is, uh, well, Scala has a bit of everything, but uh, I guess what they really want is some sort of uh, soundness. I know they have problems now with soundness uh, given subsumption and higher types. So you, you can define programming language by the feature they're missing. Oh, Go, Go is missing everything. Uh, Go is missing generics, for example. <laughs> Many people would say, "Oh, Go would be so much better if it had generics." So mm-hmm. uh, would uh, it is higher types the, the dream of Swift maybe uh There are a lot of features that I wish were there. uh Hurricane types is one of them. I don't see personally myself uh, using them too much i I would have liked to have them this week, for example, for one specific case um but i I dealt without it and that's not a a feature that i I feel uh really strongly about. Uh, Something like dependent types, I think, have much more value because they allow you to express, um, they allow to help you in a very strong way. Uh, I'm saying that because I've also programmed a bit bit with Idris, and I can see how the compiler, how the relationship between the programmer and the compiler changes once you have dependent types. Uh, I know this will never happen, and there is no way, of making it happen, right? It would be another programming language, it would not be Swift anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I I think there there there's value into looking into other features that would implement. Try to see if they would work, try to see if they make sense, uh, try to see if they are giving enough value compared to the costs they have. For for example, a lot of problems that come with uh, subsumption uh, when you have subtyping is you, you, you end up with cases, for example, in Scala two point, until 2.12, or uh, until Dotty basically, basically, where it's really hard to compute the intersection between two types, and you have very complicated cases where the compiler cannot figure out uh, the highest lower bound of two types. And that's very annoying. Mm. Um, you lose a lot of performance. You lose a lot of uh, error reporting it's really hard to have nice error reporting to detect those cases and say uh, I'm the compiler I accidentally went to infinite loop trying to fear the 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 lowest upper bound uh, and therefore I cannot do it but this is my best guess instead you get a large page of types upon types upon types that makes no sense so adding features to programming languages adding features to programming languages is nice how you kind of type are nice now i don't know if it makes sense to add them in the Swift compiler, given its state, uh, given how useful they are, and uh, given how complex it would be to implement them. Uh, there is one thing I would like to say about uh, adding features to Swift is I would like to have something if I, if I, if there was, for example, I don't know, a Muraki, and I was the, the, the monarchy of programming languages, and um, I would have to decide the fate of Swift tomorrow, I would say we should, <laughs> we should have some way of temporarily disabling features. For example, the, the, uh, the null check bypass strategy, which is exclamation mark, I would really like to to have a a pragma or something that says at the beginning of the file, this is strictly forbidden, you cannot have this in this file, and put this somewhere uh, in in documentation or, or, or in the type signature, saying, this function cannot have uh, optional force cast or type casts You cannot cast types to other types arbitrarily. Uh, things like this, very, very basic um, uh, removing of features temporarily because because you don't use them, right? Because if you use them, either you really know what you're doing, and therefore it should not be the default. Or if you don't use them, then you should not be using them at all and be safe and, and trust your code that it's not doing some funny thing behind the scenes. Hurricane types are a nice dream. Uh, I wish I had them. I don't know if it's reasonable.
0: <laughs> Could you have like a, a code linter and give it a list of all the partial functions in the hmm. standard library and say like, I want my compilation to just fail hmm. if I hit one of these. Yeah. Like,
1: so uh, what we what we do uh, where I work right now is we have we we use this wonderful library um, made by those wonderful people of the of the uh, Swift podcast. What is it called? Uh, I have it here, Swift unwrapped, um, one of them works with, um, Swift lint, Swift lint as a, a, library is a linter for swifts. So yeah, that takes
0: you, you know, that takes you towards an approximate, you know, total solution where you're, you're, yeah. you could ban the, the use of yeah, partial absolutely. functions. Uh,
1: unfortunately, there are multiple signs like, uh, using null is one. Of the multiple ways that Swift makes makes program total by proxy, uh, there are others. For example, the way you have exceptions, rather the way you don't have exceptions, is uh, very nice. It's a uh, uh, it gives a lot of peace of mind. Let's put it that way that to think that uh, you can trust every line of code as being uh, executed and not potentially crashing. Uh, and giving out some huge stack trace that you don't know where it comes from. Uh,
0: so let's let's explore that. Uh, so how do, how do exceptions work
1: in Swift? So there are no traditional exceptions in the sense that uh, they are, so for example, if you take a, if we have a language like Java, which is the go-to example because everybody knows it and it has been there for 25 years now. Java has checked and unchecked exceptions Uh, When I talk about exceptions, I usually mean unchecked exceptions. Oh, and Scala has them too. Unchecked exceptions are exceptions that can happen at any time, at any point during your execution. Uh, Maybe I just skipped over what are exceptions. I will just do a quick reminder. So, exceptions are what happens when you reach a state that is not acceptable for your programming link, for your, your program. So if it reaches reaches a state where it's literally stuck or does not know what to do or is not supposed to go there because, for example, it's a page fault, it it will stop execution and raise an exception. And that is, it will go to the last function that has called it and say, hey, something went wrong. Please deal with it because I cannot. And if this function cannot deal with it, it will go to its caller and say, I don't know what to do with that. Deal with it. And it goes um, that way over and over until it reaches some function that says, oh, don't worry, Uh, I know what to do. We'll just use this other code path because uh, if that went wrong, it means, I don't know, for example, the server uh, network um, is down. Uh, Sorry, the network connection is down. Therefore, we can use local data. And this function knows how to deal with it. It catches the exception, resumes execution, and goes towards another code path. So Swift does not have this mechanism where anything can crash at any point. Uh, But it does not have checked exception either. So checked exceptions are exceptions that you know, they can happen. And you know what kind of errors can happen. And uh, in Java, it means that uh, you annotate your, your function with the list with the type of exception that you can expect. And when you call a function that can Mm -hmm. throw an exception that is checked, you have to catch it and you have to. um, Sorry about that you have to take one of or you have to take care of all the possible failures that can happen since you know what they can be it's uh, quite easy to be exhaustive and choose a appropriate code path for every one of them now it's a bit of a a it's not a solution to everything because checked exceptions are quite annoying to deal with especially when you have multiple mm-hmm. of them stacked together or nested and none makes dealing with error uh painful in the sense that you have lots of boilerplates and most of the time you don't know what to do with the error because well you're not responsible if the network goes down what it's what you're supposed to do i mean for example you're logging in and the network goes down well you can't log in i guess so you just stop or crash or if it's an assumption that uh, your program makes um, if this this assumption is broken then it makes sense to crash so there is no reason to catch this exception so what you will do in the catch block is just throw another exception or just plain crash right here so it's not a solution to everything um, swift solution to this is to have a another annotation that says this can throw something but we don't know what it is and uh, it's a form of checked exception except it's you could say it's worse than Java because you don't know what kind of exception you can expect. Well, what kind of errors. <laughs> but they have nice um, they have nice um, utility around it. So for example, if you have multiple exceptions or multiple functions that can throw exception, you can bundle them together in a block and it will all go fine. You can also uh, do something interesting. That is, if you have an exception and you don't care at all about the error, you can transform this into an optional and say if it's an error, just put nil instead. And if it's nil, I know something went wrong, and I know how to deal with nil because I've been dealing with nil my whole life with my whole programming Swift. And that's one way to deal with it. Behind the scenes, there is no there is no um, stack trace where you, you unwind an exception, like I said, calling your call. Uh, notifying your color over and over again until it's it's handled. So it's not an exception in the traditional sense, it's closer to an either type, because you return something and it happens that what you return is an error. But the syntax is very close to exceptions, because you have a do a, a try block and a catch block. So to answer the question, Swift does not have a little type, Swift's exceptions are technically like Result types because you return either of two things without unwinding a stack, but there is mm-hmm. no uh, stack unwinding like traditional exceptions.
0: Interesting. Um, what what brought you to so you're an mm-hmm. iOS developer, but you clearly have an interest in um, some more uh, like Idris, yeah. Agda. What what brings you to those languages?
1: So my 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 history of programming is. Um, interesting, because I, I've, uh, like like many people started uh, programming, making games, uh, because video games are very, very nice. You, you play with them, you learn with them, uh, you have very good experiences. And it's a way to to exhibit your, your, your creative like impulses. If you want to, to do something, but for example, you're not confident in writing or not confident in singing, or it's too hard to learn music. Uh, You might, and you're used to video games, you might think, oh, when I'll grow up, I'll just write video games because I love them. And um, (laughs) that's what I did. I started writing games and I started um, working on on a game for a long time with a a group of people. And doing that, I discovered that there are problems that I would like to solve that my programming language cannot solve. Or if it can, it cannot uh, do it in a way that I would like to, to do. It cannot express the things I would like to express. So I discovered languages like uh, Scala and Haskell. And uh, was very happy with them for a while. Until I discovered that, uh, again, they have some things that I would like to express that they they don't allow to express. And with a bit of, of time and a lot of work, I discovered that there exist programming languages that allow it to do this. And they are theorem provers like cock and and I tried cock for a bit but it's not a let's say it's not very ergonomic for programming uh, actual programs right you you wouldn't write you wouldn't write games in cock you could uh, (laughs) I I don't recommend it Uh, and then I discovered address as a a pregnant language with dependent types which has all the nice things I like um, like the Haskell syntax like dependent types and like and like its um, its ability to express formal um, properties, mathematical properties about your program, uh, like simple proofs and more complex proofs. And it's a way of writing proofs also that I really enjoy because it's very hands on. Some people will, will will say that it's barbaric because you write your case analysis uh, in a way that is not automated. Uh, if you know about Coq, you know about the Tactic system, and the tactic system allows you to write proofs in a way that is extremely expressive, extremely simple, and automated, um, in a way that allows you to extend your proofs very easily. And if you do it in Agda or COC, uh, or Idris, if you try to change something in your proofs, you will have to change a whole bunch of stuff. So it's not very useful. Well, it's useful, but it's not very ergonomic for a couple of things. But it allows me to to express uh, some problems that I would like to solve. And um, I said this like in in thirty seconds. Uh, this evolution took I don't know ten years to go from basic basic making games to looking at um, dependent types and type theory and category theory and, and actual algebra. Uh, it's a it's a huge learning curve, um, but it's I think it's it's worth, uh, it's worth it. It's worth going through because you 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 really learn to do to recognize patterns to write code that is, that strives for those other uh, properties. And once you, you realize that you can use those algebraic properties, you can write code, or you can make architectures that don't have to be so complex and can use things like type classes to generate code that you, you would uh, not have to write. And code that you don't write is code that is trivially correct. And that makes your code bases nicer, and that makes your maintenance nicer, and then it makes your day easier, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think there is very large value in learning more formal programming language, more formal ideas, more theoretical subjects like algebra when you're a programmer, because you can use this knowledge, maybe not directly, but it, it trains your brain to to detect patterns and and apply them where where it's useful. And it's also a very, very nice community and very nice uh, field of research.
0: I'm glad that you were able to take learnings from, you know, a more abstract area and they, mm. that they help you in your, mm. in your day to day. So what's, um, if, if everybody all of a sudden had knowledge of, of <laughs> all this information there. and, and we all were writing you know, in, in a
1: total style, what what would software development look like? It would be very slow. It would be very, very slow. It's already a, really slow as is. Uh, one drawback, one huge drawback of, of writing in a total style is that uh, lots of stuff that you don't care about has to be handled. And most software nowadays don't care about those details. So you would, you would waste a bunch of time defining or proving properties about your architecture, your data types that really are no, they're not interesting for, for the end product. We have lots of cases where you use technology and it has, you know, some unexpected behavior. Like you, you have a. An application you try to launch it and then it freezes, or it's just slow, or the input on your screen does not work as expected. Some, you know, some tiny things that are a bit annoying, like you you, you connect your Bluetooth speaker and it takes a while, and then doesn't connect, and then you turn it off and you turn it out again, and since you've reset you've reset the state, it's back into its um, initial state, and therefore uh, the state transitions are much more predictable, and then goes to the correct state where it connects. Uh, all those are. Tiny problems that could be very easily solved if we had better way of checking for those state transitions, uh, and right now we we don't really um, have ways of dealing with with state transitions. We 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 can write pure functions, for example, in Haskell, and deal with state, but we cannot prove that all our state transitions are correct or make sense. And, and that's one thing that uh, dependent types um, allow you to to express is. If I have a state transition from A to B, it is not possible to call this function with something else than an A. Therefore, I will always go to B. Therefore, there's no crash between A and B.
0: Yeah, I hope we get there. Like I think that I think that dependent types will will start appearing in places. At least that's my hope, and it'll let us kind of encode these concepts and have them verified mm. at compile time. So I want to be uh, conscious of your time. I think we've already gone over. Uh, thanks so much for talking to me, Andre. It's been great. Uh, it's been great to talk to you too. So that was the interview. If you like this episode, do me a huge favor and think about who else might like it and, and share it with them. For me, sharing a tech podcast that I like just means sharing it in my company's Slack group. There's an off-topic channel and I just throw it in there. Yeah, so if it's the same at your work, yeah, share it out. Right now, the main thing I'm trying to do is just grow the podcast listenership. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.